Anyway, you can turn over in your, your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Fall back in the fall, right? Yeah, so Romans chapter 8. And uh, last week we finished off a little section of Scripture, almost finished it off. We didn't get through verse 17, but a little series called Blessed Assurance. And we were talking about some important truths that we saw there in, uh, in God's uh, Word. And uh, one of the things that um, just way of uh, um, review, I guess, is that uh, there was a couple things that we put up there on adoption. If you can put those up on the screen, because I don't have my notes with me. so um, <clears throat> The consequences of adoption. First of all, the adopted person lost all ties to his old family. That could have been a good thing or a bad thing, maybe, depending on what your family's like, right? So you don't know. But uh, when someone was adopted, all ties were severed with their birth family. And we spoke last week about how that is so true when we come to Christ. Secondly, the second consequence we looked at, the adopted person became an heir of his new father. And remember, we have the idea of adoption of you know, some poor child on the corner that has nowhere to go and, and someone out of pity takes them into their family. Uh, that's kind of true from our perspective. We are poor sinners lost in a dying world. And God does take pity upon our souls, but he actually makes a choice to adopt us into his family. And back in the Roman culture, back in the historical times when Paul was writing this, if a father knew that his siblings, his children were not up to par to inherit everything he had, he was within his rights to go outside of the home and go into the countryside or the city or wherever and find a young man who was able, who had the character and the management skills to manage his estate. And he could bring that son into the home and give him all the rights that these other siblings should have had, but because of their lack of character or dishonesty, whatever it might have been, they didn't get that privilege. And so God does have pity on our souls. He saves us. We are lost out on the street like orphans, but he chose us. And it says he chose us before the foundation of the world. He adopted us. And then the third thing, he became the heirs of his father. The third thing was, was the adopted person's past was forgotten. Um, All the debts were canceled out. Everything that was part of that person's liability uh, column before he was adopted was paid for. It was wiped out. It was clean. They started off with a brand new clean slate in Uh, this new family. And that's so important. And it's such a good picture of what adoption is for us. Well, I just want to read our text for this morning, Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin in in verse uh, 14, down to verse 17. We're just going to be looking pretty much at verse 17 today. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, look at what it says, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. 
Uh, if I asked you this morning after the service came up to you and I said, hey, I got some information this last week. Somebody called the church and they gave me your name and they said, you are heir to an estate. And they wanted me to contact you and let you know. Probably the first thing that would pop into your head, maybe the second, but probably the first is, well, wonder what I'm heir to, <laughs> right? Um, you might not even care who the person is. But if they got some stuff and they want to give it to you, you're probably thinking, probably thinking, this could be a good deal. You probably want to know what you're going to inherit. You, you, know, you want to know what, what you're going to be getting. Well, we have an inheritance to come as believers. And so we start from the truth that most of our rewards are in the future. That's so important to understand as a Christian. Most of what we are going to get is in the future. I mean, yeah, he saves us from our sin, that past, present, future. I get that. He gives us the power of the Spirit to live this life. But a lot of the blessings that we're going to receive as Christians has to do with future blessings. So what blessings does our inheritance consist of? Um, What we believers actually possess in heaven should be of interest to you. You know, we sang a song this morning. Whom have I, what, in heaven but you, okay? There are a number of things that you might consider lesser things. And then there's really one of the greatest things of all. The first thing, the heavenly home. The first thing that comes to mind in the promise of the heavenly home is that Jesus made a promise to his disciples just before his arrest and his crucifixion. And he said in John 14, 1 to 3, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I don't know about you, but that should cause a little bit of excitement in your heart if you're a believer here this morning. That Jesus himself is preparing a place for you. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. The gentlemen across the street from us um, are rebuilding their house, and it's kind of exciting. You know, you see them tear the old house down, and now they're rebuilding this bigger house. And every day you see different structures going up, different walls going up, electricians and plumbers and all kinds of contractors going there. There's an excitement in having someone prepare something for you. Well, Jesus is preparing a place for us. And this is a place prepared especially for all believers. All of us will have a place in heaven if we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, if we've trusted in Christ and his work on Calvary. And it's guaranteed by no less a than Jesus, the Lord himself. He says, I make this personal promise to you. If you're one of my disciples, if you come after me, you trust in me, not in your own works, not in your church affiliation, but you trust in what the work I have done for you, then you will have a place in heaven one day. Um, What's it going to be like? I mean, the Bible talks a lot about heaven but it leaves a lot of mysteries about heaven there too. 
Uh, it should be a, a pretty neat place, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. And I trust you are too. Amen? Amen. Well, secondly, not only just a heavenly home, but also a heavenly banquet. I mean, who doesn't like food, right? I mean, come on. <clears throat> In several parables, the Lord spoke of this heavenly banquet to which we're invited as his guests. In one story, he told of a great wedding supper into which many were invited who later refused to come and how the master sent uh, to unexpected places to find guests. Uh, turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. The parable of the wedding feast. And these were parables that Jesus used to teach spiritual truth. And it says there in verse... 1 of Matthew 22, and again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven will be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent the, his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. What was their problem? Their priorities were wrong, right? They had a problem with priorities. A lot of us today, we have a problem with priorities. We fail to see the significance of certain spiritual exercises in our own life and Pretty soon, life crowds them out completely because we're busy with our family or our children or our businesses or whatever it might be. Anything other than God would be the wrong answer. It doesn't matter how noble it might be. And he goes on there, and he says, while the rest uh, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So they basically took it out on the messengers, the ones who were inviting them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murdered and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found Look at what it says, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are what? Chosen. There's a banquet that's going to happen, and we're invited to it. Um, and, and in the Bible times, they did this a lot. When they had something to celebrate, they would have food. We do it today in our churches. When we have anything, there's usually food there. Um, that's just the way it works. And so these stories of these parables of this wedding feast 
really present our inheritance as a joy and a secure fellowship. Those who are chosen are going to be there. Nobody's going to be able to slip in under God's radar um, at the last moment or something like that. And there's only one door to that banquet, and that's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have to be reminded of that. Um, and so we, you have this banquet. Thirdly, you also have something that's pretty unique. We're going to rule with Christ. Another feature of our inheritance is that we will rule with Jesus in his kingdom. Um, there's some difference among Bible scholars as to whether this refers to the earthly rule of, of, of with Christ in some present age, whatever. But I don't want to get into the, the weeds here. I, I believe literally in what it says. But the thing you need to understand, there's no doubt that some important authority is going to happen. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul told Timothy, if we endure, we will also what? Reign with him it says in 2.12. We will reign with him. I mean, can you imagine that? Reigning with Christ? Ruling with Christ? What, what an incredible thing one day. And so we see that this is something that is promised to us. In one of his parables, over in, in the Gospel of Luke 19, Jesus spoke of his of servants in, his, in the parable. He spoke of, of servants who had shown their faithfulness during their master's absence. And look at this in verse 11, Luke 19, verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they had supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That's what the disciples thought. They thought, we're going to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to kick out the Roman rule and we're going to take over. He's our king. That's what they thought. He says in verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minyas and said to them, Came a certain amount, engage in business until I come. So they were to make some form of investment. But his citizens hated him. <laughs> Interesting. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him and said, Lord, your minia has, uh, has had ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your uh, minia has five minas and he said to him you uh and, and you are to be over five cities and then another one came and said here is your minia which i laid away in a handkerchief for i was afraid of you because you were a severe man you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow 
He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money, why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the uh, minion from the man and give it to the one who has 10 minions. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minions. I said, I tell, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want to what? Reign over me to reign over them. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. Sobering story kind of brings home the whole idea of being responsible with our leadership, with what is being entrusted to us, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a husband and a family, whether it's in a church. But one day we're going to rule with Christ. I mean, can you imagine just, you know, just right, right alongside? It's amazing. Well, the fourth thing here, and this is probably one of the most profound things, is we're going to be like Christ. One of the most promised blessings, which means a great deal to us, should as believers, is that we will be made like Jesus himself, the Bible says. John writes about this in his first letter, using language similar to what Paul writes here in uh, Romans in First John chapter three verses one to two, he says, "Dear friends, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. For we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." I mean, it's hard for us to imagine a greater inheritance than to be made like the Lord Jesus Christ in all His attributes and everything that he possesses. That's amazing. Christ-likeness is an incredible thing. And one day, in our glorified state, that's what the Bible promises. Well, there's one other thing here that is probably the, the, the apex of our inheritance, and that is that we inherit God himself. If you look back at Romans, I mean, that's kind of an incredible thing to understand that we're going to inherit God? How, how does that, what does that mean? He says there in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Um, the Lord, our portion. In view of this last, you know, four things, when you talk about inheriting God himself, you're an heir of God. I mean, adoption is an incredible thing when you think about it. That's what it results in. When you look around and you see people that have been adopted off the street or out of the country or whatever it might be, it's usually children who've had no family to provide for their needs, no mom or dad to take care of them. A lot of them are malnourished, they're sick because they don't have any insurance to get the proper health care. They have little instruction going on. And here's someone, a family that is able to adopts them in and begins to provide nourishment and 
education and care and concern. Well, th- that's the picture of us who have been adopted into God's family. We were spiritually dirty. We were diseased, right? We were impoverished um, beyond our wildest imaginations. And we had no one else to care for us, the Bible says. We were in deliberate, you might say, rebellion against God. But one day he showed up and he chose to love us. He chose to clean us up, to remove our rags. He clothed us, clothed us in the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fed us with the, nourishing, the nourishment that comes from God's word. And he guides us through the power of his spirit in paths of righteousness and wisdom each and every day. He brought us literally into his family, the Bible says. And now we have brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that we can share our burdens with. We're not by ourselves. We're not alone. See, that's one thing that's very harmful to any church is a lack of transparency. You know, the one thing that I never would want our congregation to become is a congregation where there's no transparency where everybody just comes and pastes their little happy Jesus smile on every Sunday. How are you doing? Oh, fine. How are you doing? You know, and you do your little thing, and then you go home, back to your depressive state or being whatever that might be with all the cares and concerns of the world raining down upon you without ever thinking that you might be able to relate to another brother or sister in Christ some of the burdens that you're carrying and they could actually help you through that time because maybe they walked in those same shoes as you are now walking if we were only humble enough to admit the situation in which we find ourselves. How God would rain down upon us, I have no doubt, the blessings of heaven and they would come through the brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. That's what church, that's what any congregation should be about. And so he made us part of this family where we have brothers and sisters in Christ that care for us. He made us his heirs so that throughout eternity we will enjoy these unfathomable riches of Christ that are promised to us. There is one truth that kind of raises its ugly face here. Question, if we're God's beloved children, then why does he allow us to suffer? You ever hear that? I mean, I don't know about you, but as a parent, as an earthly parent, and as a grandparent, even more so, I do everything that I can to protect my kids and my grandkids from suffering. If it's within my power, I'll do it. And you know what? They know that too, by the way. <laughs> so sometimes they take advantage of that. But for the most part, you know, you, you, you want to bless your grandkids. You want to bless your kids, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional. And if God is an all-powerful and all-loving father, you got to stop and you got to say, why doesn't he do that for us? <laughs> why doesn't he alleviate all this pain and suffering we go through down here on earth? Um. Now, there's a lot of books. You can go into any bookstore, Christian bookstore, and 
read a plethora of books on this subject. But here, Paul, through the rest of the chapter, shows that, you know what? Suffering in life has a purpose. It has a plan. It's actually for our benefit. And shows that Paul, through the rest of the chapter, shows us that our suffering is not at odds, as we would think, with God's love for us and for his children. It's not. It's very much in alignment with it. And that's hard for us logically to get at first because suffering is nothing that, uh, you know, we all want to go through. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and I wonder how I'm going to suffer today for Jesus. I can't wait. You know, that's far from my heart. You know, I'm looking for God's blessing. I'm looking for kind of an easy road through the day. I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to. But the one thing I understand spiritually is when the suffering comes, when the trials come and the tribulations hit, you know what? I have a Savior that has already endured a lot more suffering than I have. And that he's willing to walk with me and beside me through these times of hardship. Just as our Savior had to suffer first and then enter glory, that's what he did, so too is our path. It goes through the valley of suffering. And so we need to really remind ourselves of that. And in Romans 8, 17, our text for this morning, is really a transitional verse almost. It sums up what Paul has been saying, and yet it introduces what he's going to say. Um, Spurgeon describes Paul's style here as building a sort of Jacob's ladder that takes us up from one step to the next. And here's how Spurgeon describes it. He says, first of all, in verse 14, chapter 8, Romans, he says that all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we saw that in the context when we studied that. that It's it's important that the the Spirit is leading us and guiding us, uh, life choices, and to kill our sin to die daily to the sin that we know resides within our hearts. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting us and enabling us to fight against the sin that we see, it's evidence that you should assure yourself that you are a child of God. And then he says the next step up the ladder is that you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then you are an heir. And then he goes higher. He says, if you are an heir of God himself and a joint heir with Christ, the utmost rung on the ladder is that we will one day be glorified with him. We will stand in his presence in a glorified state. And Spurgeon kind of applies this by saying that every grace we receive should lead us to seek after something still higher. Don't ever think that you have arrived. Don't ever grow complacent in your spiritual life. We should always seek to be filled more and more and more with the fullness of God and the fullness of his spirit and to grow more and more in Christ-likeness. Well, that was all introduction. So now we're going to move along rather quickly, so kind of hold on. I'm convinced here that Paul does not want us to just think about these things. He's not just giving us information. He's not just saying, here's some you know, nice little thoughts for you to dwell on. Um, and you walk away going, well, that was interesting. I think he wants us to feel 
down in our gut, in our heart, emotionally, this wonderful grace and the love of being adopted by God into his family and all the glorious riches that God has stored up for us in the future in spite of some of the the everyday, present-day sufferings that we have to go through. I think he's saying here, as God's adopted children, this is in your outline, we have... We are his heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, which includes suffering now and future glory. We talked a little bit last week about how to get, you know, the path to glory is through suffering. It doesn't matter whether it's the gym or the workout or whatever. You have to put in some time on the suffering angle if you want to reap the results. The first point here, through God's gracious adoption, we have become his children. We saw this in in verse 15 of chapter 8. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Um, The spirit is this seal. It's the pledge of our inheritance as adopted children of God. That's why it's so important to understand when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You have it. He dwells within you. You are baptized into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. This isn't something that you seek for afterwards. It's not subsequent to salvation. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. It's just that simple. And so we have to be reminded of that. Um, In the wonderful book, Knowing God by by, uh, J.I. Packer, he talks about adoption. And he says this, that he talks about it being the highest... Um, privilege that the gospel offers, even, even higher than the blessing of justification, he says, because it brings us into the richer relationship with God as our loving Father. He says this, the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it, of adoption is what he's referring to. Um, and he goes on and he illustrates in his book there from the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, as Jesus so wonderfully taught. And he, he shares how adoption is the basis of Christian conduct as we imitate the Father. It's at the root of glorifying the Father as people see our good works and glorify the Father is in heaven. It's at the heart of pleasing the Father who sees our hearts rather than being hypocrites who practice our righteousness just before men. See, adoption is the basis of Christian prayer. Since Jesus taught us how to pray, gave us an example, our Father who art in heaven. See, adoption is also the basis of a life of faith because we have to learn to trust the Father to provide our needs and not just ourselves. And he kind of elaborates how adoption gives us deep insights into five other matters. He says, it shows us the greatness of God, God's grace and love, It shows us the glory of the Christian hope, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the meaning meaning and motives of what the Puritans called gospel holiness, and the clue we need to see our way through the problem of assurances. Assurance. So you got to stop and you ask yourself, does the doctrine of God's gracious adoption of you as his child make your heart well up with thanksgiving? And joy as you realize all that the Father's done for you on your behalf. 
I mean, he handpicked you out of the gutter of sin. He cleaned you up. He clothed you with the perfect righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lovingly brought you into his family as his child, where you enjoy all these unfathomable riches of his grace, both now and forevermore, eternity. I mean, if you meditate on that truth every day, that will give you the strength to resist sin and give you the grace to endure the trials that you're dealing with in your Christian life. But first of all, you have to make sure that you're his child. The Bible is very clear of that. Because by nature, our sin causes us to be what? Children of wrath. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We're not all children of God. That's universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that. How do we become a child of God? Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say you are all sons of God through faith in Grace Bible Church or the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church. He doesn't say that. He says it's through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, instead of trusting in yourselves and your good works, and no doubt you have some because we all have some good works, according to the world standard, not God's. Instead of trusting in yourself and your good works to get you into heaven, you put your faith, your trust in Christ and in his work who died to pay the penalty of sin for everyone who believes in him. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to come to God through faith, through Christ. Unless you boast in your faith, Some people find themselves boasting in their faith. Keep in mind that faith itself is from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, he says, In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. If by God's grace, through faith in Christ, you are a child of God, then you are part of his family. You have been adopted into his family. Secondly, as God's children, we become heirs. We become heirs. Um, Once in a while, we'll turn on the TV and they'll have, you know, it's not Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous anymore, but they have shows like that, right? And I just sit there in awe thinking, how do these people live this way? I mean, it is amazing. Or once in a while, Ken, I have the opportunity to, to visit some houses that he's cleaning, new construction thing. He'll bring me pictures on his phone and say, look at this house. And I'm like, is that a house? It looks like a castle. He goes, yeah. He goes, we go to clean it. We need blueprints to get around. I mean, we get lost. I mean, it's just amazing. And I'm thinking, wow. Do you ever sit around and just think, well, I wonder what that'd be like? Not in a covetous way, but just in a fun way. Um, and you stop and you think of some of the wealthy families in our country. And you stop and think, boy, I wonder what it'd be like to be an heir to their fortune. And then reality hits, and you start to read some of their stories. And from what I've read, many of those heirs are far from happy people. They have everything money could buy. But they fight. They take each other to court. They're trying to grab, protect their 
portion of the inheritance. See, isn't it a wonderful thing as children of God, the creator and Lord of the entire universe, we never need to fear that someone else will get our portion? I mean, isn't it a wonderful thing? He, he's going to give us everything he's going to give us. Romans 10, 12 says that God is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. He's abounding. It's, it's something that's just overflowing. There's four truths here about our inheritance as God's children. First of all, we are heirs of God himself. We spoke to that. If children, heirs also, heirs of God. At the very least, it means that we will receive all that God has promised to us as his children. But it probably also means that God himself is our inheritance. This truth has been taught in the Old Testament. When Israel conquered the land of Canaan, it was divided up into various tribes. Deuteronomy chapter 18 Joshua chapter 13 talks about this. But the priestly tribe of Levi got no land. They got nothing. Because who was their inheritance? The Lord. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Do you suppose that any of those Levites looked with envy upon the other tribes when they were out plowing their fertile pastures and grumbled, where's my inheritance? But when they were told the Lord... God of Israel is your inheritance. They complain, bummer, man, I'd rather have some land. I hope not. I mean, can you imagine saying, oh, you know, I want a bigger house instead of God as my inheritance. I mean, that'd be kind of ridiculous. The psalmist knew the joy of having God as his inheritance. In Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, we sang this, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but what? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The prophet Jeremiah also knew this wonderful truth. He had witnessed the awful destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, along with the slaughter of many of the people and the deportation into slavery by many others. It was far, far worse even than our 9-11 tragedy that happened here in our states. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 24. In the midst of his grief, here's what he says. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. If God himself is our inheritance, then our salvation is secure because he is eternal, he is unchangeable, and you know what? His promises never fail. His promises never fail. Do you ever order something from TV and you get it and, you know, while you're ordering it, it says, oh, you know, oh yeah, you can, you can send it back, you know, send the empty bottle back, no problem. We just need your credit card number. You know, you've probably done that. And you get this stuff, whatever it is, and it doesn't work. And you try to find the 800 number. You go on the website, and oh, it's, it's, and this stuff keeps coming out of your account. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? What? They weren't true to their word. Okay, God is not that kind of a God. He is true. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. His promises never, ever fail. And the reason we have him for our inheritance is because he first chose us and predestined us to adoption as his children. Secondly, we are heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things. 
See, it's not like Jesus didn't have anything. You know, I mean, you know, if, if I called my, my uh, grandkids up and said, you're going to be my heir, they'd probably look at me and go, so what? <laughs> you know, you don't have anything. What do we want that you got? You know? Um, but see, that's not the case with God, right? I mean, we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ has pretty much everything. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says this, in these last days, God has spoken He has spoken to us in his son. Indicates he's not still speaking to us. There's not new revelation going on. Be careful with that. And then he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. It's interesting, that term in the original language, all things, incredible got to do a word study on that because it means all things that's exactly what it means it means all things it's all inclusive it's all comprehensive paul puts it this way because he was rebuked by the bickering corinthians at the time in first corinthians chapter 3 verse 21 24 he says for all things belong to you whether paul or apollos or cephas or the world or life or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So if we're co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is secure because there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus will inherit all that the Father has given to him. And Psalm 2 says, The nations rage against God and seek to overthrow Throw off the lordship of his anointed king. But God who sits in the heavens scoffs at these proud earthly kings. He says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to 8, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. See, it is certain that Jesus will inherit all that the Father has promised to him. And since we are fellow heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is just as secure. Our right to the riches of heaven is not because there's anything good in us, but because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have that inheritance But what does our inheritance look like? Our inheritance includes the unfathomable riches of Christ, thirdly. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul describes his ministry as to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I mean, when you stop and think about that, that's a whole message in and of itself. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take ages and ages and ages and ages in eternity to reveal to us all that God has prepared for us and has given to us in Christ Jesus. And these riches include our being heirs of the world. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, literally the seed of Abraham, said that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. God did not, or Abraham did not inherit, obviously, the world in his lifetime. The only piece of real estate he owned was a burial grave 
a cave. But God has promised a new city whose architect and builder, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, is God. Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. And since we are fellow heirs with Christ, I want you to understand he is the seed of Abraham. We will inherit the new heavens and earth with him. We're also heirs of the kingdom of God. James chapter 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? See, all these are future blessings that we will have. And included with these promises, we are heirs, finally, of eternal life. Eternal life, which is really the joy of knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Titus chapter 3, Paul says this in verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, it says he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, write that text down, Titus 3, 4 to 7, and go home and read it, and read it, and read it, and read it. I mean, it's amazing what we have in Christ. Well, the fact that we are heirs of God, we're also fellow heirs with Christ, makes our, absolutely, our salvation absolutely certain. In Galatians uh, 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant according to the promise. And who made the promise? God who cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 or 17 to 18, we read this in the same way God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things were God's word of promise and his oath, which he swore by himself to Abraham. Hebrews 6, 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. See, God wants us to know that our inheritance, for one thing, it's imperishable. It's undefiled, as 1 Peter 1, 4 says. It will not fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven. you ever gone out to dinner to a fancy restaurant what do you have to do make a reservation you know generally you don't just show up hey yeah a table or two you know i look at you like who are you you know do you have a reservation sir no you have to make a reservation well it tells us there that our reservation in heaven is already made and it's made by god it's absolutely certain and you say, well, then why does he allow us to suffer? And with this, we'll close the third point here. Is if we have these promises and assurance from his spirit, then we can endure present sufferings as the path toward future glory with Christ. Paul adds in, in chapter 8, verse 17 there at the end, he says, If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
Why does Paul throw that in there? Why does he just slip it in there real quick? Well, I think Paul was a realistic pastor, and he wanted his people to apply these glorious truths about the future inheritance. to the present reality in their lives as they lived in a fallen and hurting and sinful world. I mean, when you think of Paul himself, he, he suffered terribly in his life. Read 2 Corinthians 11. tells us there. And he knew many of his readers were suffering. Some were being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Some had lost loved ones to martyrdom. But you know what? The bottom line is all of God's children go through trials from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. That's what we do. We go through trials with our family. We go through trials with other people. We go through trials at work. We go through trials at play. We go through trials because of our sins and our sins of others against us. We go through trials of health problems and disappointments and heartaches and grief. That's part of life. That's just what's before us. But why does God allow us to suffer why doesn't he kind of insulate us somehow if Jesus God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased had to suffer before entering glory then why wouldn't you expect why would you expect us to be exempt see the popular teaching that it's God's will for his children to be healthy and wealthy and wise and all that that's not found in the bible anyway anywhere it's nonsense have you ever noticed that none of these false teachers proclaiming this nonsense are over uh, 100 years of age still going strong why because they get sick and they die they're deceiving people and they're doing it for the sake of sordid gain They're filling their pockets. Also, if you think about this, if Jesus himself, who was sinless, learned obedience through the things that he suffered, that's what Hebrews 5.8 tells us, then why in the world would we think that we wouldn't have to do something like that? It's not going to be an easier course for us. God disciplines all of his children so that we might share in his holiness, preparing us one day for that glory that awaits us. Someone put it this way, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. When you stop and think about that, God has really blessed us. And the reason that he allows these trials, these sufferings in our life is to drive us to trust him more and more each and every day to purify the dross from our own lives, to keep and produce perseverance, proven character, hope in our lives. They keep us from loving this world, which frankly can be very easily loved at times. And they help us to be focused not on our present day reality, but on eternity. Paul says here that we will be glorified with Christ. Our adoption is a present-day reality, but there's still a future fulfillment of it when we receive our new resurrected bodies. We'll get into that in a couple weeks, and we'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. J.C. Ryle, and we'll close with this reading. He asks a series of questions. 
and then expounds on the, the perfections of heaven. He says, is knowledge pleasant to us now? In heaven we shall know all things, and there will be no disagreements among believers. Is holiness pleasant to us now? Is sin causing us trouble now? In heaven there will be no sin. Is rest pleasant to us now? Are we often weary and faint? In heaven we will enjoy God's perfect rest. Is service pleasant for us now? We will serve God perfectly in heaven without any of our present limitations. Is satisfaction pleasant to us now? In heaven, our joy will be perfect and permanent. Is communion with the saints pleasant now? Don't answer. In heaven, we will enjoy perfect fellowship with God's people. Is communion with Christ pleasant for us now? In heaven, we will see his face and our fellowship will never, ever be broken by our sin. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us heirs with Christ, that you've adopted us into your own family, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to care for us and to pray for us and to encourage us and edify us and build us up in the faith as we do to them. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just save us and leave us on our own, but you deposited within us the blessed Holy Spirit of God that gives us the power and the wisdom and the ability to live a life that's honoring and glorifying to you each and every day. Father, we, we long, we yearn to be in your presence one day. Father, I, I can't help but think even now as we're praying, Rudolph is in your presence. He's whole. He's home. He's where you desire him to be. And Father, I pray that as we await our home going, we await for you to reach down on that day, that hour. You already know when it will take place. Father, I pray that we would look forward to it, that we would embrace it, that we would realize that this home is not our home. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And there's so much glory that awaits for us on the other side if we truly know Christ. And I pray for any here this morning who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Maybe they're trusting in themselves. Maybe they're trusting in a church. Maybe they're trusting in their own works, their own goodness. All those things will fail in the end. Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never, ever knew you. The only answer to give is that I know Christ, that I've lived for Christ, I've trusted in Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. That will save your heart. You cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, even in my unbelief, Lord. Show me the way of your salvation. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' presence.